You're listening to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Ayman Lau, and I'm the communications officer with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Today, I'm joined by Sheriff Thurchin, the executive director of the Canada Tibet Committee. On August 17, 2020, a motion put forth by MP Garnett Jenis was passed. The motion called for Canada to support the resumption of dialogue between representatives of the Tibetan people and the government of the People's Republic of China, with a view to allowing the genuine autonomy of Tibet within the framework of the Chinese constitution. Sherup and I will be discussing this motion and why Tibet is and should be a critical issue in Canada-China relations. Welcome to the podcast, Sherup. Thank you for having me, Ayman. All right. Well, first, tell us a bit about yourself and your work at the Canada-Tibet Committee. I started my work with Canada-Tibet Committee in 2018. So Canada-Tibet Committee has been the voice of Tibet advocacy in Ottawa for the last 32 years. So our primary role is to monitor human rights development inside Tibet and promote the support for Tibet in Canada through various means, whether it is contacting the parliament or government or the civil societies or the Canadian public in general. And before Canada-Tibet Committee was involved in other Tibet issues in India and Nepal through various projects. What is the current situation in Tibet under the governance of the Chinese government? So, in theory, in the current situation, the Chinese constitution does promise democratic opportunity and the political liberties to the Tibetan people. But in reality, Tibet has not been able to exercise those promised freedom. It has gotten worse since the President Xi Jinping. I would like to start with a bit of points on the economic, social, and cultural rights of Tibetans under the Xi Jinping government. Despite China's and Xi Jinping's aims of rising prosperity and high levels of economic growth in Tibetan area, poverty continues to plague Tibetans living under the Chinese authority. And while the government often highlights about the impressive GDP and subsidies, in reality, Tibetans in Tibet have faced discriminatory policies along with the political repression that have put two-class economic and social system, which is primarily based on race. There are various international statistics, including uh, UN Development Program statistics on Human Development Index, entire China, that shows that Tibet still is the poorest region, but from Tibetan perspective, it's still the country. So the lowest score in whole of China on various uh, index, including Human Development Index, the Living Index. In terms of uh, more cultural part, China argues that it defends and promotes Tibetan culture in part by efforts to encourage cultural tourism in Tibetan areas. But Tibetan instead you know, highlight what they view as the Disneyfication of Tibetan tradition and institute. In a recent example in the Kartze, which is in the eastern Tibet, a, a large part of a Harungar Buddhist academy, which was the largest Buddhist study center in the whole Tibet, was demolished and the residents were expelled and forced into re-education, all in the name and the pretext of the redevelopment of tourism. So in addition to the demolition of physical structures, China has started claiming the rights of pointing the reincarnation of Tibetan Buddhist Lama a move uh, that we believe is clearly aimed uh, at interfering in the future reincarnation of Dalai Lama. And again, of course, there's a case of Tibet's pension Lama kidnapping by CCP when he was only six years old. is another testament to China's violation of religious rights of Tibetan people. I know the Chinese government has claimed 
that he is now living a normal life. He's gone through education and he just wants to be left alone. Do you believe any of those claims? Absolutely not. As Dr. Sangi said during his testimony at the Canada-China Committee, if the international community and if the Tibetans are to believe in the claims of China, then the China should allow the access to Tibet for the or the for us to see his family, whether it's in person or in video. But at least there should be some sort of a record. But so far, the only thing we have is a photo of Penchenama when he was only six years old. So all the claims of him being well and doing well and good education is absolutely unbelievable. The government, Chinese government, passed a legislation called Ethnic Unity which is aimed at the complete assimilation of Tibetan into majority-dominant Han Chinese with the idea of undermining Tibetan language, culture, religion, and its unique identity. So under this law, anyone discussing the preservation of Tibetan culture, language, and Tibetan unity can be punished or disciplined for disrupting the so-called national unity. I think the good example of this law is the arrest of Tibetan language education advocate Tashi Wangchuk, who was arrested and sentenced for five years on the charges of inciting separatism. And his only act was appearing in a New York Times documentary where he spoke about the importance of preserving Tibetan language and culture. That has a lot of similarities to what we're seeing in Hong Kong, which has now taken the stage, I think, in terms of Canada-China relations. That case definitely has similarities to the national security law that Beijing has imposed. Absolutely. There's just different names and similar in the purpose. So Dr. Lapsang Sangay, who is the president of Tibetan's government in exile, the Central Tibetan Administration, he recently testified to the government of Canada and urged the federal government to support the resumption of dialogue between Tibetan representatives and the Chinese government. And in his testimony, he called this move a win-win situation for all. Could you explain further the importance of resuming talks between Beijing and the Tibetan people? Sure. I think for many Tibetans, the idea of a win-win situation is that we're not seeking a complete independence of Tibet from China, that we're seeking a genuine autonomy, which is already promised within the Chinese framework of Chinese constitution. And I think a good example is that China as a global superpower spends billions of dollars every year to improve its soft power. However, they've completely ignored the person who really in many ways symbolizes the soft power to millions of people around the world, who's willing to work with the Chinese government for the long-term interests of Tibetans and Chinese without seeking independence of any sort. And of course, this person is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. But ironically and, and very sadly, the Chinese government fails to see this and they're just waiting for him, for the Dalai Lama to pass away. And so when Dr. Sangit says there's a win-win situation, I think it is conveying the sense of urgency that there's an opportunity to have a dialogue while Dalai Lama is still alive, while he still has the influence over 20% of Chinese population who are Buddhist and of course the 6 million Tibetans in Tibet who hold him dearly as not only as the religious leader, but also as a moral authority. Yes, I think it really is in not only is in interest of Tibetans, but also in China, but uh, Chinese. So, but unfortunately, the government of China fails to see this. So I think, you know, one thing that 
I feel Canadians have a bit of trouble grasping is the exact situation in Tibet. I'm just curious if you could explain a little further with what is exactly in the Chinese constitution and what has the Chinese government violated when it comes to Tibet. The constitution does promise original autonomy to ethnic minorities in China. That would include Tibetans and Uyghur, and autonomy to practice their own language and culture and religion, and also an autonomy to elect members uh, from their own community to represent them and in their region. But in Tibet, in the last 60 years since the invasion of Tibet, there has never been a Tibetan leading the Tibet so-called Tibet Autonomous Region. The roles that Tibetans play are usually at the very junior level in the CCP. And so I think it's the promises exist only in theory. And I know Dr. Sangay mentioned this, saying that what's happening in Tibet is happening all over the world. What has happened in Tibet and what is happening in Hong Kong it's not something that is you know happening uh, thousands of miles away. It could happen Right here in Canada, we have seen an example of that with the intimidation and harassment of Hong Kong students and Tibetan students. We saw a story about you know, thousands of emails that originated from China threatening the life of a Tibetan student advocate, Chimil Lamo. I think it indicates that the reach of Chinese government is not limited within the boundary of the PRC. And, and so I think it's, it's the threat not only to Hong Kong Tibetan, but also anyone who believes in the idea of democracy to the human rights. And as Dr. Sangha said, uh, they're ch- trying to change the whole definition of human rights with their influence in the United Nations. When this motion was put forth by MP Janice, it was initially adjourned, citing a need for more study. And it suggests a lack of understanding of Tibet, despite the mountain of evidence we have. And so what do you think that Canada still fails to understand about Tibet and China? There's several front where Canadian or the Canadian government fails to understand about Tibet and China. One is that, and this is not just limited to Canada, I think this is similar in many other countries, it is that the international community over the past few years has come to accept that the issue of Tibet is an internal issue of China. However, if we go back to the record of 1960s or early 1950s, there's an evidence that Tibet was an independent state and it was not an issue of internal matter of China. For example, I would like to quote this statement from, made by Canada's Minister of External Affairs, Lester Pearson, in 1950. He said, in fact, it appears that during the past 40 years, Tibet has controlled its own internal and external affairs. Viewing the situation thus, I'm of an opinion that Tibet is from the viewpoint of international law, qualified for recognition as an independent state. So this is just an example of statement that came in the early 1950s and right after the invasion. And there were several other statements from different countries that in some ways recognized Tibet as an independent country and the issue of Tibet-China, not as an issue of internal Chinese government issues, but the, an, an issue of one country invading another. However, over the past decades, with China spending billions of dollars in the disinformation campaign, the Chinese government has successfully, I think, put what Michael Wenwa, who's a famous Tibet author, calls a Soviet-tested strategy of reflexive control, where the government fits a manufactured narrative of Tibet or of any other 
target group for so long, so consistently, that the target, that the country, international community, start believing in that narrative. And this, unfortunately, has happened with Tibet. And now when there is a talk about Tibet, the government hesitates to get involved, believing that they will, they're actually interfering in Chinese uh, internal matter, which is really unfortunate. Again, the one area where Canada fails to understand Tibet and China. But there's another area where the Canada not only fails, but hesitates is that when it comes to other issues, non-China related issues, there's not much, you know, cost to pay. But when we're dealing with China, there's a cost to pay. Australian basketball player Andrew Wiggins, when he said this in response to the NBA superstar LeBron James, lack of support to Hong Kong. He said, it's all about cost until it is about cost. LeBron James, as many people would know, is a, is a fierce supporter of human rights in the U.S. But when it came to Hong Kong, he was against the students who was fighting for the democracy and the freedom in Hong Kong. Because for him, time was not for cause, but for the cost. And so this is, I think, applicable to not just individuals, but to countries as well. So it's, it's easy to stand when there's not much price to pay. But when you stand for Hong Kong, for Tibet, for East Turkestan, there's definitely a price to pay. With other countries, how are they approaching Tibet? The first country that really comes in the mind of many Tibetans is definitely the United States. The United States earlier this year passed a bill called Reciprocal Access to Tibet, and it has now been implemented by the U.S. State Department. The bill calls for access for the American journalists, the diplomats, human rights experts to Tibet. And then there is uh, also another bill that is being tabled in the Senate, U.S. Senate, which was passed in the U.S. House of Representatives this year. The bill is called Tibet Policy and Security Act, which is aimed at stopping China from interfering in the identification of, of reincarnation of future Dalai Lama. And then there is India, which has which shares a border with Tibet, and, and which is now under China and has had several conflicts, including military conflicts in the last few months. And the Indian government's support to Tibet is, I think, well documented. Perhaps the biggest contribution is giving a home to the Dalai Lama and to the Tibetan government in exile. So... I do not recall any specific parliamentary tools uh, in forms of support, but France, the Germany, Australia, including a small country like Czech Republic, has a large number of Tibet support uh, members of parliament. In fact, Czech Republic share has the largest number of members of parliament supporting Tibet in whole Europe, and and Japan has been a key ally again. And in the so there's a parliamentary friends of Tibet and association that exists in most countries that support Tibet, including in Canada. And in comparison of all these parliamentary friends of Tibet, Japan has the largest number of member of parliament supporting Tibet issue through their membership of the parliamentary friends of Tibet. I think one of the questions that I have is that we're, we're starting to see a shift in public opinion on China, and we're starting to see coalition of governments, they're saying that they're going to push back against China. And we're hearing a lot about Hong Kong and the Uyghur Muslims. But I'm curious, how is Tibet critical to Canada-China relations? 
There are several connecting points about how Tibet issue is critical to Canada's policy on China. But I would start with the Canada's conferment of uh, honorary citizen to the Dalai Lama. There are only, I think, if I'm not mistaken, only six honorary citizens that Canada has awarded in entire history. And uh, when you award something like honorary citizen, I think it comes with a lot of belief in the values that person is carrying. And I think it's really, it would be a meaningless if you don't believe in the idea that Dalai Lama has put forward. Honorary citizens should mean something for the Canadian government. Tibet issue, along with the Hong Kong Uyghur, uh, one of the few non-violent movements in, in the world going on. And Canada you know, has this image of a country that supports peace around the world. And it's really, I think, a test for Canada to put the ideas, principles, values into action by supporting, speaking up for Tibet, Hong Kong, and Uyghur. The issue of Tibet, Hong Kong, not the only issues in the international world right now. I mean, we have so many other issues, but what makes Tibet and Hong Kong and Uyghur issue unique is that we have not adopted to violence against the Chinese government. I think that that's a test for Canada and the international community. What is your hope for the future of Tibet? My hope for Tibet is very similar to the hope of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the hope of Central Tibetan Administration. I hope that one day, you know, Tibetans in Tibet can practice their language, culture, religion without any fear. I hope that Tibetans and Chinese can live in harmony side by side. I hope the Chinese government will not stop destroying the fragile environment of Tibet, which many environmental scientists call the third pole's importance to the global environmental impact. And I hope that Chinese government would respect the lifestyle of indigenous Tibetans who are most of whom live a nomadic lifestyle, who have been the guardians of the land for thousands of years. That's uh, a brief uh, hope for the Tibet. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, I guess, what would be your advice to the Prime Minister or the Minister of Foreign Affairs um, on the issue of Tibet, for example? And also, you know, we're hearing a lot of talk about actions such as sanctions or diversification of our economy. But yeah, what, so what would be your advice? You know, I was watching a documentary yesterday called A Song for Tibet, which was made in 1991. That, that documentary, it shows the Tibet advocates in those early 90s struggling to get the support of Canadian government it also has this moment where Dalai Lama visits Canada and the Canadian Prime Minister doesn't, you know, meet him. There's also a video of where some member of parliament attending the talk by the Dalai Lama and the House of Commons sending an indication that they should come and attend the House of Commons meeting in an attempt to reduce the number of MPs attending the talk by Dalai Lama. And sadly, you know, this was 30 years ago, and sadly, not much seems to have changed. There's still that sense of fear, hesitation when dealing with China. You know, it's it, 30 years ago, these Tibet supporters, both Tibetans and non-Tibetans, were calling for then-Prime Minister to speak to Dalai Lama to do the right thing by meeting a person who was just awarded a Nobel Peace Prize. And yet there was hesitation to meet Dalai Lama. 
was globally known as the man of peace. And sadly, you know, even 30 years later, we're asking for the same thing. Nothing much seems to have changed. So I would ask Prime Minister if I had a chance to reflect the importance of human rights as a core Canadian value in this country's foreign policy, and also consider the significance of the Dalai Lama as an honorary Canadian citizen. If human rights are a core Canadian value, then should we not support them even when there's a price to pay? You know, are Canadian values bought and sold as commodities in the international market? Why is the Dalai Lama honorary Canadian citizen? And what obligation does the honor impose on this country? At least it should imply some respect for his approach to resolving the conflict in Tibet. I would urge the PM to listen to the perception of majority of Canadians on China. The public perception is shifting away from China now. So it's all in the interest of current Canadian government to really adopt policy that is based on the human rights development in China for Hong Kong, for East Turkestan, for Tibetans. Thank you so much for joining us on Podless Canada. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Ivan. Mean,